Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M. The podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. This episode of What the M is brought to you by Guardian Asset Management. Guardian Asset Management is the one-stop shop for lenders, servicers, hedge funds, residential and commercial investors, and government entities that need a full suite of property management solutions under one roof. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of the What the M podcast. This is Stephen Laddick. Happy to be here with everybody. Happy to have our listeners out there. Uh, Hope everyone is having a good week. Our co-host, Kent McPhail, is on vacation this week. So we have a fantastic stand-in for Kent McPhail, Kent's law partner, Brooke Sanchez. Say hello, Brooke. Hey, Steve. I'm really excited to be here. Mr. McPhail is on the ski slopes where he belongs, um, and I'm just excited to be on the podcast today. I was a guest before, but now I get to be the co-host, so I'm certainly honored. You are the host of this one, (laughs) since this topic is right up your alley. Our theme this week, what we're going to talk about, we're going to give an update on bankruptcy law. It's it's February 2024. We're early in the year, but uh, we wanted to cover some new topics that are coming up in the bankruptcy world that we're seeing from a mortgage servicing perspective. We're going to talk a little bit about some changes to the rules, some changes to the fees. Uh, Also going to talk a little bit about statistics and what has come up with regard to um, the number of filings that we saw from 23 over 2022, and if that trend should continue in 24, will there be an uptick? So I'm going to kick it off with a couple of questions for Brooke to talk about. Let's start with the bankruptcy statistics and where we're at today. I was looking at this recently, and I was surprised. I knew 23, the number of filings had gone up over 2022, but I was surprised at the extent they did. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit about the types of bankruptcies and what the trends are right now for the filings. Yeah, I was surprised too. So, you know, most people in the industry and certainly bankruptcy professionals, we've been kind of bracing for this increase of bankruptcies, especially since COVID. Um, And it just kind of hasn't come. Um, There's been a little bit of gradual increase. It went down from 2019 a little bit of gradual increase, but we finally saw the momentum swing up in 2023. Um, so there was almost 17% increase in consumer bankruptcy filings. That's chapter seven and chapter 13. There was a huge increase in the commercial business filings, um, about 75% increase between, from 2022 to 2023. Um I think we can expect the consumer and the commercial bankruptcies to continue to increase. I think it's picked up momentum. And I know we've been saying that for a few years, but I think we're finally seeing that actually come to fruition. Yeah. Let me ask you a few questions based off those statistics. Now, the number of commercial filings way up and What we come back to, though, is the economy is performing so well and unemployment still remains near a historic low. If this commercial trend continues, I mean, is there going to be, do you see an increase in unemployment from Chapter 7s by these filings? That's part one of my question. Yeah, that's a good question. 
you know, there's a lot of different factors that come into play when whether bankruptcies are going to increase. Um, quite frankly, things can be so bad that people are not filing bankruptcy. Um, there's no reason to get a fresh start if there's nothing on the horizon, if there's no blood that can be squeezed from the turnip and you don't see an, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Or quite frankly, people don't have enough money to file bankruptcy. Um, and then after COVID, I think last year we saw the runoff of the different various types of government stimulus. Um, we saw the interest rates, which I think at the end of 2023, we saw that change, but I think we're still going to see an increase in those bankruptcy filings. It's, it's interesting that if you look at foreclosure statistics for 2023, it's still well below the level it was pre-COVID. It's only at about 65% of the level it was at the end of 2019, early 2020. Now, foreclosures are usually what precipitates filing bankruptcies. So what is it out there that's causing, uh, in your opinion, what's causing the increase of the consumer filings? Or are they just filing prior to the foreclosures taking place? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, usually you see the foreclosures and then the bankruptcies increase, but we've kind of seen a little bit of the reverse. So just to give some numbers with what we're talking about, 2019, there were a total of 775,000 bankruptcies. We're not anywhere near that. Um, but in 2022, we had 387,000 and some change. And then 2023, we're up to 453,000. Um, that's, we had almost 19,000 business bankruptcies in 23. That's up from a little over 13,000. So that's a huge increase. And, you know, I think a lot of the big name businesses we saw go under last year. I, I, I think the momentum's just picking up. I think we'll see that increase. The question is, when will we get back to the pre-2019 levels? That I'm not sure of. Yeah. Yeah, it's still well below then. Let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, certain amendments that went into effect, I think, in December of 23. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about and highlight some of the changes that are in effect now? Yeah, sure. So, in my opinion, just about in enough time for everyone to get used to the fees, they increase. So that happened in December and they all the fees went up just a little bit. And that's not just on the debtor side. So usually when they do a fee increase, they'll do them across the board a little bit. Um, so filing fees went up for the debtor, filing fees for the things that creditors and basically the fees for everything went up a little bit. For example, w one of the things that we do a lot in our industry is a motion for relief. That fee went up from 188 to 199. And they do that every so often. They'll do it again when we just get used to the 199. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, so we saw that across the board. Um, another big change in the rules that went into effect in December was a change to the 410A, which is a proof of claim attachment form. Um, that 410A is a very complicated item. So why don't you <laughs> just 
just uh, explain a little bit about what you mean for our listeners that might not be familiar with the term 410A. Absolutely. So there's a proof of claim form that all creditors file um, in the first few months of a bankruptcy. And if it is a mortgage debt and there are arrears, then the creditor is required to file an attachment with that proof of claim. And that is supposed to be essentially a pay history back from the first date of default. (laughs) So depending on how much in default and how long ago that first started, we could be talking about an extensive attachment. Now, this went into play years ago now, and we're still getting used to that. Um, But the change that came forward in December was now the arrears have to be broken up by principal and interest. And that wasn't something that we had to designate before. So it's not something that typically I've seen provided from my mortgage servicing clients when they send over a referral for a proof of claim. So we're, we're, you know, a little bit of back and forth. This is new information that we need that we have to include in that attachment to the proof of claim. Um, But we're getting used to it. Just one other variable that has to be filled out in that long and complicated attachment. Uh, It is very complicated. And when you start having to break it down, it it makes it even more manual and more complicated to do. Absolutely. And like I said, when some of these debtors are coming in to save their home and have years and years of default. So you may have an attachment that goes on for years and years. (laughs) I I mentioned as we started that you are standing in as our co-host today for Kent, but I neglected to ask you about your background and and the jurisdictions that you practice in. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself before we get back to the bankruptcy topic? Yeah. um, So I have been practicing almost 20 years now. I graduated law school in 2005. um, And I first started out in Florida and I started representing debtors in bankruptcy. And I did it for 10 years and I really enjoyed it. But my family is in Mobile. And that's where our headquarters are now. And I have an 11-year-old son, but shortly after he was born, we decided to move back. I did debtor work for a couple more years, but then eventually made the switch and joined up with Kent. And since then, I've been representing creditors only in bankruptcy and other various FDCPA claims and some foreclosure actions as well. Uh, So I've been with Kent for six years now. In what states do you practice? Yeah, so I practice. I got my first license in Florida. That was in 2006. In 2014, when I moved to Alabama, I got my license there, which required taking another bar exam years after graduating law school because Florida isn't really friendly with other states. And then I just got admitted to Tennessee, or I'm actually waiting. I've been approved, and I'm waiting to be sworn in. That should be any week now. Very good. Have fun in Nashville for that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. Uh, I'm excited about that. All right, let's let's jump back into our topic and some of the rule changes that have gone into effect. Not just fee changes took place in December, but I think some rules changed as well. That's right. So we had the difference and the breakdown on the 410A form 
Probably the only other major change or, or one change that people have been talking about is they changed some of the ways that a creditor or anyone can claim unclaimed funds in a bankruptcy. Um, generally, it's a pretty cumbersome process. Um, it takes a lot of validation on behalf of the claimant, which there's no reason why it shouldn't, but um, it's been so cumbersome that I think a lot of um, re recipients have shied away from claiming that. They did make some adjustments. I think there's still a long way to go, um, but I think that at least they recognize that there need to be some changes in that area. So they're trying to make that a little bit easier for people to request those unclaimed funds when they find out that they are owed some money that are held in those unclaimed funds accounts. So those are the, probably the three main changes that took into effect in December. We talk a little bit about loss mitigation. In your jurisdictions, do bankruptcy courts engage in the loss mitigation process with debtors? Well, I'll tell you. So I told you a little bit about my background. I started on the debtor side in Florida. That happened to be in Pensacola, which is really 50 minutes from here. And right as I left there, which was 2014, and that district, which is the Northern District of Florida, they were rolling out the mandatory mortgage mediation, modification mediation, so that in that district, anytime a person filed a Chapter 13, there was a mandatory mediation between the mortgage servicer and the debtor. I didn't get to practice a lot of that, but I did some, uh, you know, and, and as you know, uh, when you mediate, even if you're ordered to mediation, you're not ordered to reach any kind of resolution. But one benefit that I saw in the short time that I did was that it helped debtors and servicers in exchanging information and communicating so that if there was the potential for a modification, that we would be able to see that sooner or easier. I think they're still doing that in the district. I don't know that if it if it's mandatory anymore, but I know that in Northern District of Florida, they do the mortgage modification mediation in Chapter 13. In Alabama, we don't we do not do any kind of mediation like that. You know, the only requirement is if the debtor wants to modify the mortgage that someone seek approval, whether it, that be the servicer or the debtor. And that's the same in Mississippi and Tennessee. But I know in other districts that they are, they have had some success with those modification mediations or more court-focused modification pro procedures. Various districts have these loss mitigation portals where the debtor and debtor's counsel apply and the servicer can communicate directly with borrower's counsel and the borrower through the portal. But just a suggestion and a tip to the servicers out there, that the judges in those districts do take it very seriously and do want your participation in that. And there are certain deadlines and certain requirements. You know, we will do our best as your attorneys to keep you up abreast of what is going on and the status of it. But it's very vital that we also get information on how things are progressing to make sure that uh, that loss mitigation portal is timely, timely updated. So. Right. That's the thing that the judges want to see. You know, this is debtor's court in bankruptcy. And the last thing that they want to see is 
a debtor doing everything that they need to do and there not be enough communication from the other side. So I think judges are pretty sensitive to that. So give me three top issues you're seeing in bankruptcy court right now. What's what's trend the trending legal fad you see? Well, so I think we talked about this before, but it's still an issue and that is the response to notice of final cure and just the different ways that each districts, even within a state, handle that and the best way for a creditor to protect themselves. Some trustees always file the notice of final cure. Some sometimes do, some don't file it at all. Sometimes there's a hearing. So without uniformity, I think that the servicer just needs to make sure that a timely res- response is filed. And, you know, it's just simply, do you agree that the pre-petition arrears are cured? And do you agree that all the post-petition payments have been made? I say simply, sometimes it can get more complicated than that. But the first step is making sure that that response is filed. And then I kind of just go with the flow, depending on what that jurisdiction is going to do. As long as I know that my response has been filed, I'm going to attend any hearing, but because it's so ununiform, depends on the district what our next step is, but we just have to make sure that that response is filed and that it's accurate. And sometimes it's not. We need to get in there and amend it. And that's okay, too. Yeah, it's a very important legal issue that the servicers need to be aware of and some of the consequences. We already have one state court reported decision in Pennsylvania from an appellate court. In that instance, the the mortgagee of record on the proof of claim sold the loan and transferred the loan to somebody else. That person did not file a transfer of claim in the bankruptcy court. So guess where the notice of final cure went? Right. It went to that prior servicer. When the new lender went and filed a foreclosure, the debtor's counsel filed a motion to dismiss it saying, my loan is current by virtue of my bankruptcy chapter 13 discharge. And the trial court and the appellate court agreed with them and throughout the uh, uh, throughout the uh, foreclosure. And the fact of the matter was the guy hadn't reached a final cure, but because nobody responded to it, it was deemed deemed current. So right. And that's to the happen. wise. You know, if you if you take a loan as a servicer while it's in bankruptcy, make sure you get an assignment recorded and a transfer of claim on file. So the court knows for notices purposes. Absolutely. Uh, that. So you asked me for three, I'll give you another one. And I'm kind of dealing with this. It's kind of a, it's related to a response to notice of final cure, but it, it's when a payment notice of payment change isn't filed at all or isn't filed on, on time. So that can create all a host of issues, but For example, in this case, we've got a dispute and the debtor doesn't agree with what I've filed as a response to notice of final cure for my client. So I'm just digging in. I'm going through month by month. Here's what was due. Here's what was paid. And then I notice on my client's pay history that that payment doesn't match with the notice of payment of change that was filed with court. And come to find out, they did a new escrow analysis. The escrow payment changed. We didn't file the notice of payment change. So nothing is reconciling. So that can, that's just one example of not filing a timely notice of payment change, how that can throw a wrench in everything. That's a very good point. Uh, 
Number three, third Number issue. Three. Um, seeing, are you seeing an uptick in motions for relief or any issues related to those? No. Uh, one thing I've, I've noticed, and this is kind of really more with the districts, but there's a couple of judges in particular in Alabama who are being very strict about approving modifications, even when if it's in everyone's benefit. Um, and that's if, if the modification is filed after the fact, um, they kind of take offense to asking for permission to modify something after everyone signed it. So now in these two districts, we have to submit a request to modify with all the unsigned documents and ask for the court to approve it before all the steps have been gone through in order to modify it which makes sense. We should be getting approval, but this is something that the servicers aren't used to. And they're sending me the modification paperwork signed. And in those instances, in these districts, I have to go back and say, hold the phone, start over. We can't do this <laughs> until the judge says it's okay. That's good. I can tell you, I, in the last year, we've had a few issues in, in Pennsylvania now relating to where the person was in bankruptcy and a sale occurred while they were in bankruptcy and uh, some good issues percolating up about, can you get retroactive relief from the stay? Can you annul the stay to validate the sale? And in the one instance, which is getting litigated and got in, it, it's better than a law school exam. <laughs> it has so many issues about a third party in competitive bidding bought the property and it went through the state court. The debtor never objected or never said anything to the state court about the validity of the sale. And the state court issues an order confirming the validity of the sale and a deed is issued and recorded. And after all that, the debtor goes into bankruptcy court and now says the sale was full weight in violation of the stay. So we have like Rooker Feldman issues yep. about overturning a state court judgment. The debtor could have gone there and could have raised the issue. We have issues of Section 549, which is a very useful section to a third-party purchaser. The legal issues in the, that have come up in the case is a third-party competitive bidder at a foreclosure sale or tax sale. I didn't realize this myself, but the issue is becoming, can that person be considered a quote-unquote purchaser under the bankruptcy code? That's one of the issues. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. We have a similar, we have a similar case. Actually, it's a, like a friend of the firm is having a case. We had this case and won. And the issue was the foreclosure sale took place prior to the bankruptcy, but the foreclosure deed was not executed and delivered until after the bankruptcy had been filed. Now we've got um, some pretty clear case law in Alabama, I think in Mississippi as well, that once that foreclosure sale has been conducted, that's it. Once the gavel falls, that's the end. And we we, we had some success a few years ago um, filing after that bankruptcy had been filed. Uh, the foreclosure had taken place prior to the petition. The deed wasn't executed until after we filed a motion to confirm that the stay was had terminated and the judge ruled in our favor. Well, someone else is fighting that same battle in one of our districts, so we'll see how that goes. But um, certainly, that the, is, the timing of petition—the timing of the petition—can create some very complex facts. It, it does now, and it, it used to be easier to determine that we knew a date 
that the sheriff sale was, and we knew a date and a time that a borrower filed a petition. But now, with instantaneous electronic submission and with bidding for some of our sales being online, it, it's getting down to literally looking at the minute and second hands on the clock as to was this filed timely. So. Yep. Well, and um, one thing that the judge said when we had success a couple years ago was, as a matter of policy, it's better for us to have this bright line rule of when when the show ends, and then that's at the foreclosure sale. It's not better for anybody to have muddy water um, with respect to when that interest is extinguished. And I agree with the judge. Of course I do, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thank you for being our co-host. You've been a former guest, but now you're a co-host. But as a guest co-host, do we still get to ask you Kent's last question of, if you could go back and talk to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give yourself? Now, you answered this, I think, once before, but do you have a, a new answer or similar answer? I do. I did answer it before, and I will uh, <laughs> I'll remind the listeners what I would tell my 20-year-old self was don't borrow any student loans. Um, and I would still tell my 20-year-old self that. Um, but I think on a more personal note, one thing I would tell my 20 year old self is don't be so hard on yourself and give yourself a break every now and then. I think um, the perfectionist in me is screaming, no, but you know, life's too short. And especially a lot of us in this industry um, don't give ourselves a break. So we got to remember to do that every now and then. Excellent advice. And thank you. Thank you to our listeners out there. And we'll talk to you soon. If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What the M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What the M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.